This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and lovely host, Hanala, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 162. There have been some people who have admitted reluctantly that they're having a hard time listening to my podcast because they're depressing. And to you, I say, well, my sense of humor, unfortunately, was yet another victim of Hamas's crimes against humanity. That's it. They're responsible for everything. All the bad news coming out of the Middle East is because of the terrorist group hatched by the Palestinian people that has grown into a massive, vicious, violent, hard-to-destroy fire-breathing dragon. That's what the Palestinians have hatched. Congratulations. So yeah, it's hard to be in a good mood, although I should be because tonight's my birthday. My luck, it's also a Sarah Batavis. What happened on Asar Batavis? Well, let's take the quiz from Chabad.org, the Asar Batavit quiz, and together we'll see how much or how little we know about Hanala's birthday, your favorite podcast host's birthday. All right, what do we do on the 10th of Tavis? Do we harvest etrogim for Sukkot, eat matzah and drink wine, fast and mourn, or dwell in the Sukkah, fast and mourn? That was fairly easy. What happened on the 10th of Tavis? The Babylonians encircled Jerusalem. The Egyptians enslaved Moses and the Israelites. The Romans broke through the walls of Jerusalem and the Greeks, or the Greeks desecrated the Holy Temple. The Romans broke through the walls of Jerusalem. So this is, this is fairly simple, unless, of course, you are a Jew for the ceasefire. If you're a Jew for the ceasefire, you probably think that the death that's mourned on 10th of Tavis is Rifki the apple picker and not Ezra the scribe. Tenth Tavis also mourns the Torah's translation into, oh, I don't know this, Chaldean, Greek, Old English, or Latin. I am going to say Latin, and I would be wrong. It is Greek. <laughs> what was wrong? Okay, we'll get into that later. You can go to the website, Chabad.org, and find out what was wrong with translating the Torah into Greek. They probably revised the facts, as people are doing right now all around the world about Israel. True or false, 10th of Tevet is the shortest fast in the Northern Hemisphere. That is true. When does the fast begin? Dawn to nightfall. That's when we fast. What happens when 10th Tevet falls out on a Friday like it does this week? The fast is either advanced to Thursday, which it wasn't. The fast is postponed to Sunday. The fast is canceled. The fast is observed as usual. Well, this year, the fast will be observed as usual on Friday. It's a pretty intense fast day if it's one that goes into Shabbos. Do pregnant and nursing women need to keep this fast? No, but some do if it's not hard. Which prophet recorded the events of this day? Prophet Ezekiel. And lastly, which special prayers are said on this day? That's going to be, it's either Slichot, prayers for forgiveness, Bakashot, prayers of request, Kiddushot, declarations of holiness, or Talpiot, heaps of prayer. I'm going to go with Slichot, and I would be right. All right, if you want to find out what you pray on Asar Batavis, go to Chabad.org, to their homepage, and learn a little more about this solemn day in the Jewish calendar, a day of fasting, that begins tonight on my birthday. I am an Asara Batavis birthday, and tonight we're going to celebrate. My mother-in-law is coming. She's bringing all the food, just the way we like it around here. And we'll make a couple of chayims and we'll bless Am Yisrael with health, wealth, and happiness. So for all of you listening, if it's already a Sarah Davis, I want to bless you with health, wealth, and happiness. Only good news. And Mashiach now because it's time for peace. It is time for peace. We are losing soldiers all over the place. Three soldiers fell in Gaza last night. Eight seriously injured. I mean, this if this is not the war of lost soldiers, that's 
that's really what, what this is beginning to feel like. It has been just brutal. Day after day, night after night, severely injured soldiers, lost soldiers. Really heartbreaking for Am Yisrael. Oh, we're all in this together, and that is why the mother of one of the boys who was killed in Gaza by friendly fire, the IDF mistook him for a terrorist. Iris Chaim, Iris, that's this heroine here. She recorded a message for the soldiers who killed her son accidentally, okay, her 28-year-old son. And this is what the message was. I heard it in Hebrew, the actual call that she made and recorded for the soldiers. I am Yotam's mother. I wanted to tell you that I love you very much and I hug you from afar. I know that everything that happened is absolutely not your fault and nobody's fault except that of Hamas. May their name be wiped out and their memories erased from earth. I want you to look after yourselves and to think of all the time that you are doing the best thing in the world, the best thing that could happen, that could help us, because all of the people of Israel and all of us need you healthy, she said. And don't hesitate for a second if you see a terrorist, she urged. Don't think that you killed the hostage deliberately. You have to look after yourselves because only that way can you look after us. And then she invites them to come and visit. She says, I want to see you with our own eyes and hug you and tell you what you did, however hard it is to say this and how sad. It was apparently the right thing in that moment, and nobody's going to judge you or be angry. Not me, not my husband, Raviv, not my daughter, Noya, not Yotam. May his memory be a blessing, and not Tuval, Yotam's brother. We love you very much. And that is all she concludes. Mi ke'amcha Yisrael. Mi ke'amcha Yisrael. A military investigation is still going forward in the accidental killing of the three escaped hostages. New details from the IDF were that the hostages, Shamriz, Chaim, and Talalka, they went to signal their identities to the IDF after they managed to escape captivity. They reached a group of soldiers seeking to be rescued in Gaza, in Gaza City's Sajaya on Friday. But the soldiers fired as they came near, killing all three. Now, according to the probe, troops from the Golani Brigade's reconnaissance unit clashed with the groups of Hamas operatives, terrorists, who opened fire at them from a building. So the IDF sent a dog in. The dog was killed by Hamas, and then the IDF killed the Hamas terrorists. And therefore, Shamriz, Chaim, and Talalka were able to escape. So they were being held in the ruins of a building with Hamas terrorists. The army sent in a dog. Hamas killed the dog. Now you're asking why why didn't the dog let them know that there were Israelis there? Well, first of all, the dog didn't know. And second of all, the dog's camera, while it was recording, it was not live streaming. So... Now that they have the footage, they know, and they have the recording of the hostages, apparently the hostage Shamriz, shouting help, that there were hostages there. But the army did not know that. Also, there were signs, there was a sign that said, um, Hitzilu, um, Chatufim, three Chatufim, that was written like in paprika and spices that they found somewhere. Apparently, the unit that knew about this sign had been switched out for the unit that was posted when these three hostages came out of that building and they had not been told that there had been signs of chatufim locally, of hostages locally. On top of that, Hamas are, you know, they've booby-trapped the entire area, like legit, every single corner, and they think of everything. So it could be that they saw the sign, didn't find the hostages, thought maybe that was just a lure to get them into a house or get them shot by a, a sharpshooter. So that also has to be taken into consideration. But according to the Times of Israel, 
the IDF understood that conditions in the field were a factor in the soldiers' action. The senior officer said the military had not identified any Palestinian civilians in Sajayiyah in the recent days. The scenario itself of hostages walking around in a battle zone had not been taken into account by the IDF. Again, a failure of imagination. That's what this all boils down to. It's like, how much can we predict? How sick are these people that will end up in a situation that our own soldiers shoot hostages? It's all on Hamas, and that should just make you or really help register how depraved and disgusting the Palestinian people are. Who's having a good time? You guys having a good time? It's hard. It's hard to have a good time where everywhere you look, there are memorials, there are reminders of the young people we're losing. Like the worst analogy ever, forgive me, but we're hemorrhaging young people. Sergeant Shiri Lat, she died on October 7th. Widely admired commanding officer of the all-female Katspaniot, the Border Visual Surveillance, Intelligence, and Combat Operations Unit. They had warned of the Hamas attack, but were not listened to. Most of the unit was wiped out in the initial attack on IDF bases. Shear would have turned 21 today. What happened? What happened? How did this happen? How do we sleep at night? How do we forgive ourselves for the loss of these beautiful lives? There's a video that's going viral of four IDF soldiers, and they are wearing their full gear. We're talking vests and guns and knee pads and boots and helmets and ski masks. And then they pull off their hats, and lo and behold, there are four beautiful Israeli young women who are in military service. 34% of IDF are women, fighter jet pilots. They're in combat units, intelligence, in the canine units, medical corps, etc., they also have an only female tank crew, the only one in the entire world. These are the women that protected Israel on October 7th, and they are the women who continue to protect Israel. Smart, good-looking, and lethal. These are the women of the IDF, Palestinians' worst nightmare. This is from I-24 News, the heroic female IDF tank women who saved an entire kibbutz. Listen to this. Their names are Hagar, Hila, Tal, Sarah, Michal, Kani, Ophir, and Tamar. The first women in Israel, probably in the entire world, who fought in an armoured battle. A heroic battle in which they saved an entire kibbutz and killed dozens of terrorists. In this photograph, which is published here for the first time, you see the tank of Kani, the company commander, storming the gate of Kibbutz Holit, on its way to cleanse the kibbutz terrorists. When we got to Sufa, there we saw the truck crashed on the road with the wounded outside. So that's when it dawned on me that we're really in combat and hearing massive shooting all around us. Hila and I stayed in on the vehicle, told to operate all communication devices, understand the situation to help the brigade commander with communications. I attacked, machine gun fire, ensuring the destruction of everything around. And if we thought that 50 terrorists was supposedly the end, 
It was only the beginning. The fighting continued there until around 8 in the evening, until we made sure the area was clean, that the community was safe, and you evacuated the civilians. It is important to say that none of us knew how to use it. It's a system that no one knew how to use. It's a qualification you have to pass in the army. None of us knew. In about 10 minutes, we all became experts. We knew exactly how to operate it, how to shoot it, how to maneuver every lever. All the settlements in the Hevel Shalom area, no terrorists reached them. Thanks to the arrival of the troops from the Paran Brigade and the tankers, which were so significant at this stage of the attack. You saved a lot of lives in Khalid, in the end, including the whole kibbutz. Right. When you're at that moment in the event, you don't think, wait, I'm saving him. I'm saving this house. You understand that there's a terrorist here and I must kill him before he reaches one of my communities. You kept saying heroines and history, and I don't, I personally don't feel like a hero. I I feel that I'm a warrior who has been given orders, and she did her job, and I believe that anyone would do it. We're the only female tank fighters in the world, very skillful, very professional. There are no other Western armies at all that have female tank fighters in them. It's really a chapter in history, something huge, both girls in armor and warriors in general. So the fact that we have women in the IDF who are tremendously brave and capable is not a surprise to me at all because Jewish women are invincible. I mean, Jewish women are just in a league of their own, in a league of their own. Everything women are contributing to this war effort on every level, wherever women are sharing their opinions, their skills, their talents, and their much-needed recipes, baking, cooking, the sheer amount of chesed that's being generated, the totality of the bravery that's been expressed. I mean, women are amazing. And I know you're looking around the kitchen thinking, I haven't done anything for anybody um, except make myself a cup of coffee and hate my kids. <laughs> it's hard. It is hard. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, when it's really time to do what you need to do to raise your kids, when you are in those moments of conflict and you rise to the occasion and you teach your kid a valuable lesson, I'm actually going to go off on a total tangent here because I just remembered a story that I wanted to share and it's joyful. So I'm going to share it right here as it comes to me. So I have a kid who lives here in Israel and he's an eight and a half year old boy. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm a girl mom. I'm a girl mom. I'm a girl sister. I'm a girl daughter. Like we're all about the girls. Even my dog is a girl. So my son is an anomaly here. Now, my lovely, adorable, gorgeous, blue-eyed Israeli-American son has recently decided that he needs cash all the time. Like, just he, he needs to be an Israeli kid with cash. He, he, he needs cash. He needs to be a guy who can buy things on the street and, you know, pick up a falafel if he wants and treat his friend to an iced coffee. And he needs money. So I'm trying to teach him that he can't demand money and he can't charge my daughter 25 shekel to pass the remote. Like, that's not how you make money. I'm trying to teach him you have to work for money. So I sent him from my house, which is downhill, up to the Merkaz, which is all the way uphill with a shopping cart so that he could return it to Yesh, where you put the shopping carts and retrieve your five shekel. In Israel, we pay for our shopping carts. If not, they would be, they're still everywhere. <laughs> but that's besides the point. I'm going to teach my son how to earn five shekel. So we walk up to the Merkaz and he is struggling. He is struggling. And I'm thinking... I know it's tough. And then he's like, you know, why don't you just, you push and I'll pull. I'm thinking, fine, I'll help him till he gets to the top of the hill. And I'm walking the dog 
and I'm pushing the cart and my son is schlepping the cart and we're walking uphill and the entire time he's complaining and saying like, why do I have to do things to get the money? And I'm thinking, let's just keep him motivated. We'll get him there. And when he puts that cart into its place and retrieves the five shekel, he will have earned money and he'll understand how good it feels. And that's what happens. And that was a very powerful parenting lesson. My point being is that we're all rising to the occasion. We are all superseding our own expectations for how we are we were going to cope with all this. By the way, whatever you are dealing with in your life right now, like no matter what you're going through, and, and I bless you, it should be well. Again, it's my birthday, so positive vibes. But whatever it is, you are doing better than expected. Like you are doing better than expected. You got up, you're listening to this podcast. You know, you're functioning. Maybe you're, you know, low-key morning. Maybe you are watching the news and thinking to yourself, oh my God, these poor, poor moms, these poor, poor Israelis, I'm going to go online and I'm going to repost something. That's how upset I am. You know, everybody is playing a role. So keep reposting and sharing and and voicing your uh, displeasure, putting it mildly, um, at the world for how they're treating Israel. But whatever it is you are doing, you are doing amazing considering the circumstances. That's just like, it's the new add-on term here in Israel. How are you? I'm good considering the circumstances, considering the circumstances that we lost another father here in Beit Shemesh. Everybody was talking about the funeral and coordinating the flag march. I'm sorry, my phone is beeping. I'm just, you know, let's see. Well, we've had some rocket attacks this morning. That has been nonstop. I think we had a few hours. Everything else is coming from Israeli stores that text you. Yes, Israeli stores text you because they take your phone number when you buy things and you're intimidated, so you give it, and then they text you all day long. Sales, war sales. <laughs> That's where we are at here in Israel. Every store is on a war sale. Yachad nenatzeach. Together we will win. And this is an idea I expressed on the Jew Function podcast. <laughs> they asked me to come on to talk about anti-Semitism. I'm like, I don't know enough about anti-Semitism to come on your show and just like add anything to the conversation. At the end, I actually prepared an entire thesis and I went on their show and I explained as follows. This was way before this October 7th, before the war. And I said, listen, look around. We have so many capable people. Yeah, we're all totally different. We have our hippies and liberals and free thinkers and artists and dreamers. And they're all on Instagram. So that's great. Let them do their thing. Pro-Israel, pro-the-Jewish people. Then we have the actual people on the ground, like Lizzie Savetsky and that redhead guy in England, you know, not everybody can do that stuff. So we're all cut out for different tasks. I don't volunteer to cook for the Chayalim. I, I skip over anything that has to do with planning meals, coordinating. I don't coordinate. I don't plan. I don't make things happen on time. But reasonably, I have a lot to offer in this arena with the podcast, on social media. I started an Instagram account. It reaches millions of people. I mean, it's just remarkable how social media still works. My beautiful land of Israel. And I'm here in Israel, trying to assess what's going on around me, assess it so my children are safe and predict perhaps when things will go back to normal. And it looks like it's going to take a long time. You know, it looks like it's going to take a long time. This is going to be a long, drawn-out war. So brace yourselves, people. Brace yourselves. So however you're doing is great, but do prepare Prepare yourselves. So you should be taking courses and reading books and listening to podcasts and taking action in any way, even tiny way that you can, so that together, all of us, all of the artists and the dreamers and the activists and the academics 
And the singers and the songwriters and the warriors and the soldiers and the mothers of the soldiers and the college students and the yeshiva students and the chilonim and the charedim and the svardim and the ashkenazim, everyone should work together with their talents. And that's how we're going to win, with the svardi women cooking and making sure everyone is well-fed and has what they need. So am I optimistic? Yes, I am very optimistic. I don't even think we have even discovered yet what we're capable of. No offense, but like this is just the beginning of the transformation from exile to redemption. And within that process, which has been described uh, as painful as a woman's contractions when she's giving birth, it hurts. And the only way over it is through it. So that's what we're facing right now. So gird your loins <laughs> and um, try to connect with good people who put you in a good headspace and make you feel positive and inspired to do good things. Like donate. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I just want you to know that together with a friend, we've raised $25,000 for a unit, a pluga up north that is getting Italian-made, Israeli-distributed, supersonic, fireproof army uniforms. As a matter of fact, we are actually upping the ante to 50,000 and we're going to buy them helmets too. And I know firsthand from a soldier that was in my house who has this helmet that this is like the Mercedes Benz of army helmets. And Israeli soldiers, well, they have the Camrys and the Accords, which is good. Those are great helmets, but we want the best for our soldiers. We want to protect them and do what we can from abroad. So, I have a fun set up with a friend, 100% legit. Every single dollar is going straight to the manufacturer for 120 uniforms. If you are in the Weekly Squeeze WhatsApp group, I posted a photo of the uniforms and the actual wholesale price, which we're getting cheaper than because we're ordering so many. And this campaign, by the way, has been run before successfully. Uniforms were delivered. I shared that on the My Beautiful Land of Israel Instagram account. This whole thing is legit through and through. And I know people are collecting. I think I just heard on Behind the Bima that $1 billion has come into Israel from abroad, from Jews abroad. And that's billion with a B. So if you're wondering where that money's going, I don't know. A, a few things I'm not sure about. I don't know if all that money was delivered. I don't know how it works with transferring money internationally. But what I can tell you is that Israelis are feeling the pinch wherever you turn. You know, we're over two months at war now. War is ridiculously expensive. I mean, you start crunching the numbers, how much all this artillery is costing. By the way, that's a hard word to pronounce. Artillery is costing Israel. And, you know, you just, you, you got to feel bad for them. On top of that, every second person is at war. That's just the fact of the matter. I don't see any more Arabs. I just went to the fruit store to get strawberries for my birthday party tonight. and the Arab worker, Amir, that used to be there, is no longer employed. And I almost feel like shame. He was a nice guy. But you know what? You should have dedicated your life to teaching your Arab brothers on the other side that they're wrong about the Jews. But instead, you were packing tomatoes. Okay? So, you know, it is what it is. And, and from what I understand, there have been thousands of foreign workers flying in over the last few days. And that's great because we need all the help we can get. So donate to our fund to get uniforms, fireproof artillery, Italian-made, Israeli-distributed uniforms for our soldiers. And yeah, just, you know, wherever you are, keep in mind that war is really expensive. Don't forget, tourism is nowhere to be found. That all, And it's so sad because it was so beautiful when the tourists were here. I'm so annoyed. 
all of this is so frustrating. Really, really, really hard to relax when there are so many reasons to get nervous and be angry and frustrated. We all need to relax and have a good laugh. And that's why I thought it was about time, by the way, that Jerry Seinfeld made his way to Israel. I haven't heard a peep from him since this whole thing started. I'm not saying he's not terribly distraught, but he wasn't exactly screaming it from the rooftops. But anyway, he was here in Israel. He might still be. Um, he visited Ba'eri and uh, met with families of the hostages, which seems to be a critical talking point for American actors and celebrities. Michael Rappaport was here, and he was just torn to shreds, torn to shreds. And he's just like this American shock jock with a big mouth, foul mouth, uses the F word, you know, all over the place. That's like his brand. But he has just been completely devoted to this cause, letting the world know what happened in Israel and, and that whole take no prisoners attitude where there is only one truth. This is the truth. They are the terrorists. We are the Jews. The terrorists love killing Jews. They accomplished the murderous massacre of the Jews. And now Jerry Seinfeld has to take a private plane to Israel to meet with the hostage parents, who, by the way, I feel so bad for. I feel so bad for. They are all just out there pleading with the world, pleading with the world. The mom of Hirsch Goldberg. Hirsch Goldberg, his face is all over Israel. He is an American Israeli. He was kidnapped by Hamas after attending the Nova Festival after his arm was blown off. And that was recorded by the GoPro videos that Hamas was taking. And that's all that Rachel Goldberg has of her son, who hasn't been heard of, let alone visited or confirmed alive since October 7th. And she shared, in no uncertain terms, that what's most hurtful, what hurts the most, what keeps her up at night is that the people that she used to admire and look up to, whether they were therapists, talk show hosts, authors, and, and she begs them to just have the opportunity to communicate what she's going through. Perhaps they can have some sort of influence and help her bring her son home. And most of them don't even reply. And if they do, they say they're sorry, but they just simply, they cannot get involved. It's just horribly painful to be an Israeli these days. And that is the actual reality. That is the reality. But we have to stay positive and grateful and thankful for the celebrities that did come. Deborah Messing's here. She is just adorable. Can somebody just hug her and tell her that I love her? I always thought she was adorable and now even more so. Like she's here on the ground just representing and pounding the pavement and letting the world know however she can what's going on in Israel and how wrong it is, good for her. And a lot of people have started to move on, and that's, I guess, a good thing. You know, we have to move on in some sense and live our lives. You know, there are other people who died this year. There are other people who died this year. I know that October 7th is just overshadowing everything that ever happened, but life is for the living. Life is for the living. And we have to honor the dead and honor them in real time, actually do things in their memory. I heard the testimonial of a couple who lived in Ba'eri, were trapped in their shelter for over 24 hours with a baby. They barely survived themselves the entire day. Their kibbutz was a war zone. They recount how their 
sister-in-law and brother-in-law were in a house three doors down, and at some point they stopped messaging. It turns out they were killed by Hamas, while their two infant twins, they had twins with them in the shelter. The two infant twins were left to cry in their cribs all day while war raged around them simply so that people should hear the babies crying. It should attract attention and bring Jews out of their homes so that they can kill them. And they left the babies alive for that. And for 14 hours, didn't feed them, pick them up, give them water, do anything. Just left them to languish in their cribs. And the only reason that they're continuing, the only reason they have the strength to go on is because they want to create a life that's worth living for their little twin baby, nephew or niece, whatever it is. They want, the, they want them to be able to grow up in a safe Israel and memorialize their parents and live for them, for the sacrifice that they made while they were living there in the land of Israel, on the land of the Jewish people. And they were killed in their homes, on Shabbos, on Simchas Torah, simply because they were Jews. But life is for the living. Interesting new social development here in the land of Israel. So we don't have an issue with classes here. I mean, some might say there were issues with Ethiopians and color and Sephardim, but you know, that's just, everything takes time. You have to adapt. I personally feel discriminated against when I'm shopping in the Americas and people yell at me because, you know, I'm not just a stupid American who doesn't speak good Hebrew. So I, I get that. Like you know, there, there's the locals. And then when the new people come, there's like weariness that sometimes you might think is racism. But as the colored people in Israel know, that's no longer an issue in 2024. And to prove it, we have a whole host of Israelis who descend from Africa, from Africans, who are standing here and saying, look at us. You see us? We are Israel. We are Israel. You see Black Lives Matter? I am an Israeli. They shared a video of one of the victims of October 11th, a black African non-Jewish worker who was brutally killed by Hamas. Black Lives Matter didn't even blink an eyelash in our direction. So the black community here is getting front and forward, and there are some amazing people. I actually had Yermio Danzing on the show. Uh, he's very vocal about his Caribbean past. And the what's her name? The, the woman who loves to dance. I, I was in a reel with her, ended up in a reel with her. So there's just a tremendous community of pro-Israel defenders that are doing Hasbara. There are a couple of beautiful soldiers, by the way, like really like jaw-droppingly gorgeous soldiers who are, are, are just sharing on Instagram how they feel. Lilac Logan, she's adorable. And she has like the coolest like Brooklyn accent. And she's an IDF commander here. And she's been posting videos about the war on Instagram. She has more than 25,000 followers. I've shared her stuff and she's terrific. She's just like speaking to the camera and saying, listen, I am 20 years old. I live in Israel. I am Israel. I am Israel. In an interview with JTA, she said, when my grandparents lived all the way in Ethiopia, they were literally hunted and chased and hated just because they were Jews, just because of their religion, she says. I lived here in Israel my whole life and I've never felt hatred. I've never felt hunted just because I'm black. Ain't that the truth? So that's just the reality here in Israel. And I think it's lovely and terrific and well-deserved that the dark-skinned Israelis, the darker the better, they are getting online and they are showing up and saying, hey, we're the Israel that all you psychopaths are demonstrating against on the streets, the ones you call white colonists. Like, 
we literally ran away from persecution to come here, a land that was colonized literally by every other nation except the Jewish people who finally established their own state and left the Arabs to cry about it. Okay, so that's where we're holding with that. Birthright, by the way, is resuming its free trips to Israel for the first time since October 7th. So get on that. Get on that. I didn't go to Birthright. My sisters did. It was one of my sisters went multiple times as a, as a, a counselor. Um, so, yeah, usually there are 23,000 Birthright tickets a year issued to Jews around the world, young Jews around the world, to come visit Israel for the first time. They're starting again, 350 participants, and we'll see. Israel is a hard sell when rockets are still flying, which they are. They are actually still flying. So, yeah, some good news. Okay, I want to share with you something that I came across on Facebook where I still frequent from time to time. Um, You know, it's my birthday tonight, and let's just say I've had a number of those in the past 43 years. Anyways, so I was on Facebook and I came across a post by my dear friend, Rachel Holzer, who will always have a special place in my heart because she inspired me initially to make Aliyah. I called her and I said, if you're making Aliyah, I'm making Aliyah. We were both in Miami Beach and we've been in touch on Facebook ever since. (laughs) So I want to read to you a post that her daughter wrote, her daughter Rivka Tara, who was in the army herself. Uh, who was in America recently at a Shabbos Hanukkah program, and she was asked to speak. And what you hear here is the perspective of an American Israeli who made Aliyah when she was a preteen, who was in the army, is a proud Jew, and um, is experiencing this dark time, this dark time in Galus, the same way we are. So this is this is her speech. Rivka Atara Holzer. My heart is in the East, though I am in the farthest ends of the West. It was a difficult decision to be here now. At 22, I know many friends back home serving in the reserves or mandatory service as we speak, including many friends, neighbors, my own brother-in-law, putting their lives on hold and some even on the line from the Negev to the Lebanon border to the hellish minefield that is Gaza. The Southern Command was my home in the IDF service for two years. I visited the border falling in love with the landscapes of the farmlands and with the quiet harmony of the towns. I remember the tour of Nachal Oz as if it was yesterday, guided by the security coordinator of the kibbutz, Ivan Fiorentino, may God avenge his blood. Green everywhere, a piece of Gan Eden. But if you turned and looked out across the valley, there was Gaza. And the kindergarten, accordingly, was reinforced as a bomb shelter. Like many of my fellow Jews privileged enough to have received an education that focused on the heritage of our people, the stories of our ancestors are inscribed in my very being. In every generation, a person must see himself in Yetzias Mitzrayim and beyond. It's a mitzvah I take very seriously. After the details of the program on October 7th began to come out, with the incessant sirens on that awful Shabbos, where our songs of Torah Sashem Tmima turned into cries of Zet Torah V'zeh Shaira, De Torah V'zeh Shara. I pointed out to my friends, it turns out we've just been living Jewish history this entire time. I so miss being part of the generation that considered all the wars behind them, and certainly the massacres. We are forever changed. 
Many who left Takafot to rescue families from the furnaces never returned, including one of my neighbors who just celebrated his first wedding anniversary over Sukkot. Libby Cohen, a beautiful, always cheerful girl I had the privilege of knowing briefly, was one of the hundreds senselessly murdered escaping the music festival. Everyone I know knows multiple people who were murdered, kidnapped, or fallen in action. She's 22. Just as the stories of the Maccabim resonated with me from infancy, who fought against the Syrian Greeks for the sovereignty and the safety of the Jewish people, against the desecration of our Torah, our land, and our women, our Maccabim and every generation are no less worthy of celebration. Our soldiers answer the same call united against all political divides. We have so many Yehudas, so many Yonatans, so many Matisyahus, commanders who lead our brothers and sisters into battle with powerful words of chizuk and heartbreakingly so many Elazars. Following his heroic legacy and that of at least 10 other Jewish men before them between the early 1940s and 2006, we now hear the stories of 19-year-old Matan Abergel, who jumped on a grenade to save another six soldiers of his Golani crew of Netta Epstein, 22, who jumped on a grenade to save his soon-to-be fiancé, of Gil Tassa, 46, who jumped on a grenade to save his two children, of Aner Shapiro, 22, who's standing at the entrance to a bomb shelter where another 30 young people were hiding, intercepted and threw back seven grenades before absor- absorbing the impact of the eighth when it exploded. And then the 14 commanders of the Zikim base, who held off the terrorists from their 90 soldiers who had just drafted Three women and four men of these 14, aged 20 to 22, were killed protecting Zikim and the soldiers under their command from RPGs, grenades, and rifles. Multiple stories of grandfathers, including that of a girl I know from Army Training, who sat alone in their living rooms waiting for the terrorists with their families hiding in the safe room in the hopes that it would be assumed they live alone. And of course, of all the fallen soldiers, police officers, rescue volunteers, and ordinary citizens who lost their lives to save others. Our Yehuda story goes back about 1,400 years in this aspect of our history to the Jewish women of Arabia enslaved by Muhammad's army after the massacre of some 700 Jewish men and boys, including the family and husband of Safiya, a 17-year-old girl taken captive as wife to Muhammad. Violence against Jewish women has been well documented throughout the diaspora, all across the Islamic world, as well as in the West. Not only do we speak out about it to the world, unashamed as Yehudas once did, Jewish women have also taken up arms alongside their brothers, just as Hannah Senesh and Chaviva Reich once went deep into Nazi-occupied Europe. The brand-new all-women's IDF tank unit made their way on the morning of October 7th from the Egyptian border up to the burning communities to take down some dozens of terrorists. And you heard that in the audio clip I played earlier. So many couples delayed wedding, uh, their weddings to the, f- before the war effort or got married on army bases in uniform, giving up their dream parties. In times of Muhammad mitzvah, everyone goes out, even a chassan from his home and a bride from her chuppah. Of course, blood libels and pogroms are seeped into the fabric of our national history. From Alexandria in the years 38 and 66, to the attacks of 788 in Tunisia and the massacre of 6,000 Jews in Fez, Morocco in 1033, to the crusades that tore through Europe and Eretisrael, to the bloody attacks and libels of the 1800s in Iran, Germany, Eretisrael, Algeria, Russia, Morocco, Poland, Iraq, Latvia, Afghanistan, Egypt, Hungary, and Syria, to the turn-of-the-century pogroms of Kishnev, Tehran, Yerushalayim, Odessa, Casablanca, to the 1925 pogrom in Hebron, Tzfat, Gaza, and Yerushalayim, that saw much of the same horrors we witnessed on October 7th, committed by the great-grandparents' great-grandparents of today's Hamas and Fatah, Yemach Shemam. 
to the Holocaust of the 20th, 20th century and the massacres against Jews that continued in Muslim countries like Iraq, Yemen, Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya until their escapes or rescue. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And there has been uh, heroic individual stories during these dark chapters that mostly involved going like sheep to the slaughter. But in this, but in this one, there is cause to say Shehech Not only can Jews now fight back, and can organize to fight back, we no longer are forced to remain on the defensive, no longer must we keep our heads down. The Jewish people live, and the Jewish people fight. In this, we take small comfort in a time of so much pain. How can I taste the food I eat? How can it give me pleasure when my sisters and brothers are in Arab chains? The 12th century words of Yehuda Halevi resonate with so many of us now. Only we are lucky enough to have the ability to live upon the ruins he longed to see. Now, this was written over Hanukkah. Bear that in mind. Hanukkah is our only holiday to take place after the end of prophecy, brought about with the global rise of Hellenism. Along with Purim, it commemorates Jewish unity, resistance, and revival, and Jews being pushed by divine plan to taking destiny into their own hands. Hidden miracles of the success of the determined minority against the encroaching multitudes and moral clarity of the boundaries of good and evil. And then there is the light of the oil, that burned for eight days when the rest of the oils were contaminated, defiled. In every generation of Gullahs, we can find gestures reminding us of God's commitment to the assurance of our survival, if only we search. We sing Ma'ot and the pleas of the last paragraph still hold fast on the heart of the Jew to the extent that many renditions of a seventh paragraph have been drafted. Makeshift menorahs and pictures coming out of the battlefields now are reminiscent of the tradition that the Maccabim rebuilt the menorah out of their spears. As the Maccabim before us, our work doesn't end at the military or the religious level. The ultimate failure of the Hashmonaim dynasty lay in its societal divisions. We too have a social responsibility and we have a lot to mend, starting with our men and women, grandparents and babies held in brutal captivity in Gaza. Faith in the suyot, in the merits of Am Yisrael, is critical, and it's so easy. At the Levaya of Binyamin Arli, the youngest brother of a friend of mine from high school, his burial section on Har Herzl Military Cemetery was fully packed. Attendees in the margins stood in the pouring rain. My daughter was there. With those under the tarp trying to force them to take their umbrellas, to hear about and pay respects to this sweet boy with the biggest smile who loved Eretz Yisrael, Am Yisrael and Torah Yisrael, and, that, and who gave his life as a paratrooper, always the first to jump into the danger. Like Nachshon ben Aminadov, he was the first to enter the building they had cleared. They thought they had cleared. At the Levaya of Rose Lubin from Atlanta, who fell in Yerushalayim just weeks after her brave defense of the religious kibbutz Sa'ad, where she spent some chastora, there was also no room to move even though she was a lone soldier who didn't grow up in Israel. Crowds gathered from across the country to hear about this brave and beautiful girl who gave everything for her people, who fell so in love with Eretz Yisrael at such a young age that she left everything behind, who so detested Lashon Hara. Hasidim volunteered to help farmers in the South. The Achim Leneshek group formed during the protests of last year, of the last year is now laser-focused on all aspects of the war effort. Zaka has been working overtime for two months now, and Jewish singers have constantly been visiting in hospitals and army bases. Jews in Israel have, and everywhere, raised money and organized the delivery of food, clothing, and so much more to soldiers and to hundreds of thousands of displaced Israelis. The main actors of the internationally acclaimed TV show Fauda themselves rescued families on October 7th. 
Idan Amedi is in active reserves, and so is the singer Akiva. Omar Adam and Yael Shalbia, two of the most famous celebrities in Israel, kickstarted critical initiatives to support soldiers, Jewish celebrities around the globe many of whom previously never publicly referenced their Jewish identity, have committed their social medias to advocacy for Israel and the Jewish people. Among the many Israelis who drove straight into the flying missiles, bullets, and RPGs to save lives at the risk of their own lives was Israeli politician Yair Golan, yesterday the youngest son of former IDF chief of staff Gabi Eisenkot, Gal, was killed in action. These are our Klai Yisrael, who answer the call of Klai Yisrael Raven Zelazeh. So easy to love. So, as we continue to wake up to rocket sirens and wait for texts from our loved ones in combat service, anxiously checking the news each morning with dread, we draw hope from the eternal light of the Jewish people for the long road ahead. It's the same light of the menorah, dedicated to the perpetual rededication of our Amuna, as our youth chant, Am Yisrael lo mefached, midarach haruka. Am Yisrael is not afraid of the long way. We keep the tefillah for hostages and for the IDF on our lips, the terrible images imprinted on our minds. The testimonies have become scars on our souls, and the fallen are in our hearts forever. And throughout the land, from army bases to homes and schools, from the battlefields to hospitals and workplaces, the Jewish people live and the Jewish people fight. May we see the full ge'ula b'mhera v'yameinu, which we certainly have merited. That is from a 22-year-old American-Israeli Ola who went to a typical Tioni high school, went to the army, and is just a remarkable human being. I mean, this so perfectly summarizes our experience here in Israel, for the good and for the bad. Um, yeah, and gives us faith. Gives us faith. We are part of a bigger story. Okay, let's get to our guest today. I am so, so glad that Flor Hassan agreed to be on this podcast because she's just a pure neshama, as we say here in Israel. And she can be intimidating. She's one of those women who gets on your TV and tells the journalist or the news anchor who's trying to spin what's going on here in Israel to the advantage of the Palestinians and the Hamas terrorists and their supporters. Well, she's one of those brave women who tells it like it is, even when sometimes she feels like having a complete meltdown. So this is her on MSNBC with Andrea Mitchell. That they have never had incidents of their fuel being co-opted. They deliver it to people they know in the hospitals. These hospitals, they were the, the amount of fuel that Israel finally delivered to Al-Shifa was enough for a half hour to an hour of what is needed to generate their equipment. So you have babies dying, taken off of incubators. First of all, UNRWA put up a tweet at some point that their fuel had been stolen by Hamas and then they had to take it down because, of course, they're very much intimidated, these international organizations. And Hamas operators are very much embedded in these organizations. So everybody, whatever they're saying, you also have to take with a pinch of salt because they're there. And absolutely. But remember that Gaza, even before October 7th, had four hours of electricity a day. Why? Because Hamas was sucking all the energy 
energy out in order to keep going this terror infrastructure that they had underneath. So the priority of Hamas has never been its people. And we're doing everything we can. We're sending incubators. We've sent fuel. We'll continue to send fuel. We cannot guarantee that fuel well, is not going to be stolen by I, Hamas. We were told by the government that no, no fuel is going in. We have images of fuel going in, of soldiers taking in fuel. Our soldiers um, are it's, constantly well, in touch can, with the staff of the hospital. And we have even moving people. Said that it's not nearly enough. But I, you, let, you let's talk. Let's talk they're about under this. intimidation. Underneath them is a whole terror infrastructure. So if you're thinking to yourself, that woman is awesome and I want to talk to her. Well, guess what? She's here. Flor Hassan Nahum. She's an Israeli politician, media expert, and policymaker. She is currently the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. She's in charge of foreign relations, international economic development, and tourism. She's also the co-founder of the UAE Israel Business Council, which is all things Abraham Accords. She was appointed by Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, as a special envoy for innovation in 2023. Today, she is here with us, and she's going to share a little bit about how her life has been since and some inspiration, because she is one talented and graceful Jewish woman that you have to know. Good morning, Floor. Um, I was just listening to a podcast episode with Michael Rappaport, who's in town. I'm all revved up again. Now, if I had you on the podcast three months ago, I would have been asking you about what I thought was Israel's most pressing issue, and that is of head lice. You have kids. I am sure you're familiar with head lice. I might have asked you about your appointment as Israel's first innovation envoy, but now it seems like the world has stopped, and mo the most pressing issue is... 10-7 and the impact it's having on us and Jews worldwide. So can you tell us in your own words how your life and your responsibilities have changed since Simcha Sora Shabbat on October 7th? Honestly, I'm not sure that anybody will ever be the same again. I feel that, I mean, I hope I'm not uh, exaggerating here, but I guess I'm just saying what I feel. But I feel that there's an innocence that we've lost um, that's never going to come back. And I know we're not talking about, and people get upset, but I know we're not talking about the magnitude of the Holocaust. I know we're not. But we're certainly talking about the brutality, the same brutality, and in some cases even worse, of the Holocaust. And I think that for people in our generation, this is our Holocaust. I don't see that we've ever been through anything worse, and Israel has been through many wars, as you know, but this has never happened in our territory before. This brutality, this targeting of civilians, the ongoing pain of the hostages that we're all feeling, we're all feeling. I keep saying to people that sometimes they don't understand me. We all see our children or our grandparents or our parents in those hostages. We're all going through it. Of course, you can't compare with the agony of the actual parents, but the whole country is mourning. But the morning doesn't end because as long as they're there, the morning won't end. And so for me, emotionally, I, you know, I've always been such a positive person, such a, you know, always such a look at the, at the bright side of life, look at the glass half full, always. That's just my nature. It's not something I had to work on. It's just who I am. And I'm finding some days um, I find it very difficult to see the light. 
Right. I describe it as death by a thousand cuts. It's just. It doesn't end. It doesn't end. And, you know, I want to say something because of your listeners who are outside of the country, they're going through very, very similar pain. You know, my sister doesn't live here. And at least here we're busy. We're activated. We're all doing something. I'm doing a million things for the war. Um, apart from Asbara, apart from uh, being in, in the media and, and doing interviews. You know, I've got a project here in Jerusalem. We've got 50,000 evacuees. We're doing stuff to bring, uh, you know, um, people to the south to help pick fruit. I'm now helping out with a kitchen in Netivot for the soldiers. We're all busy. We fill our days doing something from children to adults to everybody. In the diaspora, they don't know what to do with themselves. They are going through a very similar shiver morning experience, but just watching CNN or Fox all day long. Yeah, my father said exactly this. He literally told me that he goes from a, like a zombie from one room to another, just catching the next story. And I keep telling him, Ty, you got to get get yourself together and go do something and keep yourself busy. Otherwise, you're going to lose, yeah, you lose it, your mind. They are losing their minds. I know because I've got family and friends. I've got people working, working, but they are... This is really difficult for them too. And I think these are the moments when we realize that we're one family, we're one tribe. doesn't matter if we argue, if we don't agree, if we see God in different ways, if we pray in different ways, if we don't pray at all, it doesn't matter. We're one tribe and one family. And uh, and this is hurting all of us. You, you know, you hurt a family member. You've hurt all of us. And I think, I guess, if I'm going to find any type of silver lining it would be that but my life has changed in the work that I do in the city of Jerusalem you know I still have constituent work but mainly we're dealing with the evacuees ironically we've become a city of refuge um all our hotels and one of my portfolios is tourism all our hotels the the ones that are not luxury are filled filled with evacuees I started my own program for uh Jews from outside of Israel who have apartments in Israel to open their empty homes and have families there that are finding the hotels too much. I got a call two days ago by a family. They're four kids and they're all in one big hotel room and they're going nuts. So I'm trying to help them find an apartment right now. It's not so simple. And so, you know, we're all busy all the time. And that gives me some type of solace. And there are days when I'm more, you know, upbeat and there are days when I find it very difficult, like I said, to find the light and to see how this ends, you know. Right. So I'm here six years in Israel and I couldn't find Jerusalem on a map. I'm embarrassed to say. I'm like a typical American, Miami. But I moved here because I grew up Chabad and I always believed that Jews are safer in Israel. And I still do. I still do on a spiritual level, definitely. We know it says in Tehillim, God protects us day and night, and he's really the Iron Dome. But I have to say, as a civilian, as a citizen here, I thought we were safe, at least safer than this. You know, the fear I felt the week after October 7th, I never want to feel again. The notifications coming to my phone, you know, my, and my faith was really challenged. Because my reality, like the, the the rug was pulled out from under our feet. You know, we're the strongest yeah. nation in the world. Yeah. You know, our, our entire civilian populace are made up of women and men who are veterans and proud soldier parents. You know? Yeah. So uh, 
I still am stuck on how did this happen? How did this happen? You know, obviously God coordinates everything, but what could you tell people listening who might find some comfort in knowing that this could have been different or, or it could never have been different and this was just destined? So can you paint a little bit of the picture, how it happened that people ended up in the situation? They were in safe room for hours. The army didn't take heed of the warnings that the female soldiers reiterated in no certain terms. You know, it's hard to sleep at night with these questions. Oh, I'm with you, believe me. And I think that the whole country for the first three days were mainly, that was the feeling, the shock and the disbelief. How on earth would this have happened to us when we're so protected, when we have such a sophisticated border, when we have all this technology and, and, and we're strong? How could it have happened? So I'll give you my my regular answer, and then I'll give you my spiritual answer. Love it, love it. <laughs> I'm also a spiritual person. I'm a religious person. Um, how did it happen? In fact, a comedy of errors, as I think Shakespeare would say. Um, a bunch of things that went wrong at the same time, um, including arrogance and misogyny. Mm. Arrogance to think, that this couldn't have happened to us. Underestimating your enemy is probably the biggest Condoleezza mistake. Condoleezza Rice described it as a failure of imagination. Well, I'm not just imagination. It's 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 the arrogance to not think for a second that the enemy is a step ahead and is watching exactly what's happening here. And it's seeing our disunity, our chaos, and not seeing, oh, this is the moment because we were in disunity and chaos. For God's sake, on Yom Kippur, we were fighting over a mechitza. As we say in Hebrew, le'ani galu, le'ani galu, where did we get to? We're fighting in a Jewish country about the right to pray with a mechitza? What is this? They have to go to the high court, to the Supreme Court, to somebody went to the Supreme Court, to ban a mechitza in a public space? Where are we? It's like, it's like we open the doors of hell to ourselves. That's my spiritual side. But my... I just have to say, I felt like this was always a possibility. I didn't ever expect this. I Well, look, I didn't think they, uh, Israel would let it happen, but I thought they were well, capable I, of it. I... They're capable of, they would do that to all of us. I know, but I'm saying like people are saying this is the worst thing they've ever seen. 1929 Hebron happened less than 100 years ago. We know they're capable of this. Well, we know know these people are radicalized, capable of it, uh, barbaric. We know what what they didn't know is that they would be so successful. I actually think they didn't realize they were going to be so successful. And that's on us. It's on us. Right. How did... How did we let this happen? How did it, it was eight hours before anybody came to help those families and the ones who were alive, ones who weren't cut up or burnt or raped to death or whatever it was. I, that brutality and and the, and the fact that these women, these young women are given this, these positions of power, seemingly power, and they're dismissed as hysterical women. I feel honestly, I am... You know, I've always been a feminist, and I think that people misinterpreted the, misinterpret the meaning of feminism. Every time I tell somebody in a podcast about feminism, they go, no, no, no. I said, well, what do you think feminism is? 
Feminism is the equal rights and opportunities of men and women. That's it, right? Anything else that has been added to feminism, feminism it's equality, is, not equity. <laughs> it, it's equality, exactly. Feminism is equal rights and opportunities. I'm a feminist, a proud feminist. And I really feel that this country is going backwards and not forwards in terms of equal rights and opportunities for women. And I think this is a horrible, Stark, tragic, yes. glaring example of this. When these women were treated like hysterical girls because they said, we know what we've seen with our eyes. This is almost like the believe women. We know what we've seen. These people are planning something. But why did the army put them there to begin with? Their job was to provide surveillance and then they were being ignored. It sounds like what what, what a waste of... And they were threatened. They said to them, if you carry on talking about this, we're going to reprimand you. We're going to discipline you. We're going to kick you out. Do you understand what this means? It's like everybody's going forward. Even the Arab world going forward with female leadership and we're going backwards. Backwards. And to me, that is something that is so difficult because ultimately women were the victim. Those girls who who, who called the warning, they were the one who paid with their lives they for the were fact sacrificed. that they were, they were sacrificed. Yeah. They sacrificed with the fact that they were ignored like one of the fathers. And said. how many female soldiers killed dozens and dozens of, of terrorists? Of course. Yeah. It, I, okay. It just, well, that, that's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow when it's our soldiers right now. You know, I saw the the mother of one of the hostages say on the radio that she she's not going to join the demonstrations against um, the government together with the other parents of the hostages because she recognizes that it's our soldiers on the front lines. So it's really hard to be frustrated with the army and at the same time, the army is us. Look, at the, at the, at the one, I think that, I mean, I'm, I've got an opinion on this whole demonstration thing. I think that the families of the hostages um, have done a really great job in keeping the return of the hostages as one of the main priorities of this war. It didn't start off that way. Without the public pressure that they have managed together, they have made this a priority of war. And so I admire them. I'm in awe of them for that, the strength that they've shown. What we can't afford is for this to turn political. You know, the day after the war, you know, everybody should be investigated, tried, um, everything you want. You know, honestly, a lot of things went wrong and the buck stops with the leadership, okay? But right now, to turn this into a political thing, it's not going to help anything. It's not going to help anything because it's the soldiers that are going out there trying to find their children. And But it's an impossible situation. How can we judge these mothers? How can we judge anybody? How can we judge the mothers of the soldiers in the front lines? How can we judge the mothers and the fathers of the hostages, the children of the hostages? You really, no you really have to find your faith in all of this because otherwise oh. you could become really despondent. The the mass failures that were essentially committed by people that have always been doing their best. You know, we try really hard in Israel to have a good life. You know, the fact that we have to sit here and point fingers is just a, a double devastation. And, and and even more, I would say the fact that it's basically civil society and and regular people that basically carried the whole country in the first couple of weeks because everybody was dysfunctional. The government was dysfunctional. I know Rabbi Leo D was out there 
the government was dysfunctional and it was civil society that got together and organized the evacuations that organized people moving to to different cities that organized people came without clothes on their backs yeah. you know the food it, it was civil society and that is the strength of our people the strength of our people is that people don't wait around for things for people to do things for them we do we're doers that's how we built this country everybody has a role here everybody and that's really the one really wonderful thing to see that everybody rallied and everybody did something and we carried we carried the country we still are we still are no, my whatsapp did. group in our community is just a flurry of yeah. of chesed groups for for people that participate yeah when people don't understand the women, by the way, the women. It's always the women. <laughs> it's always the women. But it's, it's our boys there on the front lines, and it's our boys that are risking their lives. We can't forget that, and we're all one. And ultimately, we all have to do our bit. And, um, and yeah, it's a very. I, I wonder. I wonder. Just bear with me as I, you know, paint this scenario. What would we have Taka done had we known about this, or had we taken action? Let's say the female soldiers. They, they made it very clear that this attack was imminent and Israel decided to act on it and put all the troops there. Would we have slaughtered 1,400 terrorists had we known what they did? Of they course. They wouldn't have gone in. They wouldn't have gone in. I, I know they wouldn't they have gotten in, in, but let's say they charged and Israel knew that they were coming with RPGs and Charged? Weapons. What's 1,400 against I, an army? I know. but Against but, tanks. But I'm not saying Israel against can't handle it. I know. But my question is, on the world stage, we prevented the massacre of 10-7. We, the, the massacre of 10-7 occurred and people don't think we should defend ourselves. I'm just saying politically. I, I, I always feel like damned if we don't, damned if we do. So they knew well, an hour before, they just, knew a week before. They, they should have known a hundred years ago. They should have been dealt with a hundred years ago. Let me quote you one of my favorite quotes by Golda Meir. I'd rather be alive um, than dead and pitied. I'd rather be alive and, and condemned, I think, than dead and pitied. Right. It's very simple. In the Torah, it says, they rise up against you, you rise up first. That's it. Right. And I feel uh, that is the consensus here. You know, the left has been obliterated. The testimonies from the people on the South make it very clear that they've completely lost their faith in the Palestinian people as a whole. And I've been saying that for years. Yeah, I mean, these, I, these kibbutzes were people of peace. These kibbutzes on that horrible Shabbat morning, they were, the kids were making kites for a peace kite festival. These are people, the, the woman, one of the women, they couldn't, she was so obliterated, they couldn't even find a, a trace of her body. They thought she was a, a hostage. She used to drive Palestinian kids to Israeli hospitals. No, I saw that story. These were people of peace. These were, these, you know, I, I, I could have, you know, we could all have told them these are people who, for the most part, have been completely radicalized. But they are, you know, but they, they're, Thing that I guess their faith was lost. Yeah. Has this changed how you feel about Palestinians? Because I never really liked them or believed in peace, but enough people well, I did. Think, I, think, I think we have to be very um, careful to generalize, you know? Um, Hamas is a particularly, you know, genocidal Palestinian. The problem with the Palestinian people is that they've had really bad leadership. They've had leadership that has either been corrupt and have stolen from them or they've had leadership 
that have basically, well, all the leadership of the Palestinians have basically been lying to them for 100 years and telling them this. One day, we're going to kick out all the Jews or we're going to kill all the Jews. One day, just hold on, which means that they've never been educated to uh, some type of resolution with Israel, some type of peace with Israel. Um, one day we're going to, not like us, we're constantly telling our children why we sing it in our songs in school. Um, and that's the difference. Now, I have many Arab and Palestinian friends. I will, I'm the co-founder of the UAE Israel Business Council. I'm the co-founder of the Gulf Israel Women's Forum. I'm the co-founder of a program called Fem Forward, which takes Arab women and Haredi women in high tech and gives them skills to go to senior management. I, You're the host of The I, Quad. Right. And I, I'm, it says I'm about the founder you, of the quad. You said about yourself, I, I love that show. By the way, if you wanted to be a quint, uh, I'll join. A woman who can respect Arab culture, speak like an Andalusian, think like a Latin person, a British person, and a Sephardi Jew. I'm a mix of everything. I, I always say I'm like an egg. You can cook me many ways. Um, I am Sephardi. I'm a proud Sephardi woman. Um, I'm a proud observant woman. I'm a proud feminist. And I'm a proud bridge builder. You know, that's how I was raised. And I do have a lot of great Arab friends and I've got many Palestinian friends who believe in peace. This is not them. And if they were in power, this would be different. Now, are the majority of them being radicalized at this point? I think so. And that's the saddest thing. They've been radicalized. They've been taught that the best thing they can hope or do with their lives is martyr themselves for the cause. That's what they've been taught. And that's child abuse, as far as I'm concerned. The child, as you know, right? Your mother, my mother, is an empty vessel when they're born. And you can fill it with love and fill it with knowledge and fill it with faith. Or you can fill it with poison and hatred. Me filling a child with poison and hatred is child abuse. And that's what we got. That's what they have. And the people that I know have the people who themselves have unradicalized. It means they were radicalized and somehow they saw the light. Somehow they encountered a Jew and they realized, hey, these people don't have horns and tails and these people don't all want to kill us. And they, they de-radicalized themselves. But essentially they've all been radicalized. Right. We were in Dubai this summer with the kids this summer and we had such a great experience. It was such a lovely trip. And yeah, it's, yeah. The, the, obviously, the Arabs are different than us, and I ain't engage in any long, freestanding conversations with them. I just felt respected in their land, the Jew respected in well, their land. You lands. know, I, I always feel in general, a general rule in life is that people respect people who respect themselves. Yeah, yeah, because the people Palestinian people, people are broken who within themselves. It, why did we have the Abraham Accords? Because the Arabs, the Arab countries, the moderate Arab countries saw. A, that we're not going anywhere, that we're not making apologies for ourselves, and B, that we've created the best country in the entire Middle East whilst fighting with one hand and building with the other. That's respect. Right. That's respect. That's, they respect that. They respect strength. It's the opposite of America. Peace. Peace and woke strength. culture. Right. Woke culture now is all about respecting weakness, glorifying and sanctifying the oppressed. And Arab and Middle East culture is the opposite. It's all about respecting strength. And that's a huge cultural clash. And ironically, I'm with the Arabs on this <clears> one <throat> right. in the sense that, you know, what are you going to achieve by, by uh, you know, 
by um, by essentially glorifying failure. Yeah, and victimhood, yeah. Woke, toxic culture and all this diversity inclusion crap is all about not getting things on your own merit. It's all about not expecting accountability because of the color of your skin or whatever ethnic minority. And then you mix that in with a, a new revised education, Holocaust denial, and just the complete erasure of the facts regarding Israel's... Facts have no bearing in any of this anymore. When you have people who have watched the 47-minute movie and they still say, oh, well, maybe it was made by bots. It's people who have some type of a um, cognitive dissonance about essentially the fact that the uh, people who are strong, the people who succeed can never be the victims. <laughs> like think, I think the Jews, you know, we're a very rare breed of people who have always been oppressed, but we've not seen ourselves as victims. We've picked ourselves up and we've moved forward. And, you know, the best example of this, and I'll bring in my Sephardi heritage here, is the fact that in 1948, there were 750,000 Palestinian refugees from a war we didn't stop, right? From the from the uh, from the war of uh, independence, there were a million Jews living in Arab countries that also became refugees because the Arab countries became dangerous places the minute that Israel that they that they went to war with Israel became dangerous for Jews. Now, how many? I'm asking you this question. How many Palestinian refugees are there today in numbers? They started 750,000. Uh, four million? I think four Five. million. They're the only people on earth where the refugee status has been... Transfer generations. Yeah, it's hereditary. Exactly. So. We're mm -hmm. on four generations now, right? Right. How many refugees of Jews from Arab countries that were a million are there today? I feel like half of Israel. <laughs> Zero. No, I think essentially half of Israel is made yeah, up but, of people who but, fled other countries. But the but idea we don't, is yeah. that the status is zero right. because we didn't perpetuate our victimhood and our refugee status. We're all, finally, we're all refugees, right? I'm sure your family were refugees from some type yeah. of... Yeah, my Eastern grandmother's European a Holocaust country. survivor. Everyone and ran away from, from Russia. And mine from Spain. Mine were kicked out of Spain. Mm -hmm. And my mother's, you know, originally kicked out of Spain. They ended up in Morocco. My father's kicked out of Spain. We ended up in Gibraltar. So we're all refugees. Do we see ourselves as refugees? No. We're the only people on the planet that solved our own refugee crisis. Yeah. That's over and over again, by the way. Multiple over numbers. and over yeah. again. Yeah. Over and over again. You know, when, when we talk about it, you and I were preaching to the choir. This is as clear as day yeah. to you and I. So let's talk about the Hasbara community a little bit. Michael Rappaport was here. Lee Kern. Yes. I, 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 I was with I, him on Friday afternoon. I saw the selfie by the Kotel. Douglas Murray. You know, what a beautiful community of truth seekers and truth yeah. defenders we have. Like, And if that's yeah. not emotionally exhausting, you could just bang your head against the wall. I saw you on an interview on BBC a year ago, and, and the journalist is accusing Israel's police of storming Al-Aqsa. Like storming. Yeah. Do you remember that? Every year, by the way, every year. And every year, just before Pesach, or after Pesach, Ramadan, whatever, every year I do the same interview with the BBC because every year the same thing happens. And I tell them, last year you interviewed me and it was the same thing because this is a curated event by the radicals 
in order to claim that Israel, the police, is storming Al-Aqsa, when in fact we're defending and we are clearing the area for the peaceful Muslim worshippers from the 300 hooligans who show up with, with firebombs and rocks and grenades every year. And every year the same thing happens. And every year I get interviewed by BBC. Right. We, I, mean, we anticipate, I get interviewed yeah. more than once a year. But that's why they called me. On, on October 7th. And, and at that point, I was in a dilemma because I'm Shomer Shabbat. And I saw they, they were calling me again and again. And at that point, I thought, you know what? We're at war. I realized we were at war because we had five sirens. I got worried. I switched on my phone and I realized what was going on. And I thought, no, this is Pikuach Nefesh and this is what I'm saying. This is my way of being a soldier for the Jewish people. Um, only that Shabbat, of course, after that, there was no emergency. It was just an ongoing war. But that Shabbat, um, the, and this is another thing that I'm very critical of. There was no, Israel was not prepared even on the public diplomacy front. They called the prime minister's office. He didn't have a foreign, a foreign spokesperson. They called the army. They didn't know what was going on. And because of these interviews that you've picked up on, they called me and again and again, and I picked up. And since that day, I didn't stop. Yeah, well, you're needed. We're up against a raging fire of fake news. I mean, uh, the stories that they put together are literally astounding. Like, we, you know, it, they're literally, I don't know how you keep a straight face or, or just don't go all Michael Rappaport <laughs> at uh, these people. I don't, have, I don't have the luxury for two reasons. One is I hold political office and there's a respect that comes with that. But the second, Hanel, is because I'm a woman. And when a woman loses it, a woman is hysterical. When a man loses it, oh, he's such a fighter. Those are the double standards in which I live in. Bennett can walk off an interview and he's a hero. If I walked off an interview, I'd be a woman who got emotional. There's double standards of men and women. If a man walks off an interview in anger because of the very offensive questions, like Bennett did, and I, I don't judge him, but the world says, oh, look what a fighter. He doesn't put up with anybody's crap. If I did that to the world, I would be a woman who got too emotional to handle the job. What I'm saying, Kamala, is that these are the double standards for women and men in leadership right. that I have to do with. Right. And, and you're taking the calls. I'm going to just throw some lunacy at you, uh, just for my, my listeners' entertainment, because these are some of the things we're hearing. And then I'll let you go so you can actually go and do your job. We're hearing the most preposterous things. I mean, yeah. Jesus was Palestinian. That's word on the street. <laughs> oh, yeah. When, when Islam didn't even exist. Yeah. I told you, Hanala, facts don't matter. Nothing. It doesn't matter. Hanala, yesterday I had a journalist um, or, a, or a commentator on a channel that I was doing an interview telling me, but Israel has Israeli, what about the Israeli settlers of Gaza? And I said to her, are you historically illiterate? We pulled out all the settlers on in 2005. We left them the whole place. So that is what I'm dealing with from a pundit sitting in a studio in London. Right, but you still have to come back with the fact that let's say we had this terrible tragedy with our three hostages and the Israeli army immediately issues a detailed message to, to the nation and to the world about what happened and how it was friendly fire and how they apologize. And I'm like, why are we giving all the facts all the time? I understand why we have to be transparent. On the other hand, we're hearing insane things like the, the UN put out a statement, don't flood the terror tunnels because it's a, it's a, 
environmental, environmental issue. Again. And I'm like, my mouth is now this they care satire? About the environment. But when the Palestinian radicals were burning forests in Israel, they didn't say no a one said about a word. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And they, they're making, you know, full length feature films in, in Pallywood, and they also have no electricity, well, internet, or food. Well, not to mention the fact that, um, that now they need an investigation to prove there was mass rape and that there was sexual violence. They need an they, investigation they just means we're going to slap this need, out as oh, long as and possible. The people that they've appointed to run this investigation are already well-known anti-Israel and anti-Semites. Of course. These are the people appointed for the investigation. Right. But you can't yell and scream like you said. You have to actually sit and take the time and every single stupid accusation has to be pushed down. So we how, how do you educate. do it? We have to educate people. I think that what I try and do and a lot of people actually write me and thank me for that. I I don't go into interviews in combative mode to get like the last word. I don't. I go in there to explain, to educate. And the the most viral interview that I did was in the first three days of the of the war, was basically me explaining to people that we left Gaza in two thousand and five. Most people didn't know because they're talking about occupied Gaza. So I keep telling them, what are you talking, what occupation are you talking about? Yeah. There's a whole litany of words that have no real meaning when they're thrown no. away, thrown around and used as slogans at all these demonstrations. But yeah. tell that to the people holding the signs, covering their faces and just using their, their self-loathing, projecting that out onto the Jews as people do, as people do. Yeah. It's very painful. Before you go, everyone has been marveling at the the beauty of Am Yisrael. I mean, the chesed yeah. and the, the joy and the way they've, you know, from abroad sending money and coming here to Israel and being with the soldiers and do, everyone's kind of using every single tool in their toolkit to, yeah. to, to help and to fix what was broken spiritually, the sinas chinam, the, the plague of sinas chinam that was felt all throughout the world. So that's yeah. being rectified in a sense. And obviously, you know, we have to win this war. So there's a lot of technical we things. Win the war. That's not a question. The question is what price we're going to pay. Well, we already paid. We're, we're paying. I and mean, we've it's clear the price we're paying. To pay. exactly. Can you share with us maybe some chizak, some inspiration that you took from people that you've been meeting and talking to along the way that just reassure you that at the end of the day, they can do whatever they desire to us, but they cannot take away our united heart. They can't take away our Abba Yisrael and the chesed and the acts of kindness. And that's who we are. I think that what our enemies don't understand is that, uh, and this is, you know, Hashem's promise to us that we will never uh, be destroyed. You know, when you look at historical terms and you look at the fact that Jewish people have been around before the Babylonians, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, and they're all gone, are we still here? We are essentially, in historical terms, walking dinosaurs. The Jewish people are walking dinosaurs in this world in the sense that nobody can quite believe why such a small nation managed to survive, and that is because, of course, of Hashem's promise to us. But what people also don't realize is that the more you try to destroy us, the stronger we get, the more united we get, and the more determined we get. Um, and these people thought, the enemies thought, that they saw us at a very difficult time, Am Israel, a very divided time. We were biting chunks out of each other. It was really bad. 
It was really bad. And they saw that moment and they thought, oh, this is the time to attack the Jews. And boy, were they wrong. Boy, did they get us wrong. Because if one thing they did was unite us more than ever. And that is the beauty and the resilience of the Jewish people and Hashem's promise to us that we will never be destroyed and we will flourish. And not just that, we will do tikkun olam. We will fix the world. Israeli innovation is fixing the main challenges of the world, be they medical or security or agricultural or, en or energy or water, whatever it is, we are the laboratory here of the best solutions for the biggest problems in the world. And that is because we have a tikkun to do, not just internally to ourselves, to our people, but to the entire world, and they will not stop us. Yeah, and that's who we are, and that's who we are, and you see it everywhere you go. And that's why we're going to continue doing what we need to do. And then when our kids come home, put on a smile and make dinner and just try to provide them some sort of normalcy because that's what they deserve. That's what they deserve. And that's what we It's can give to really our kids at this time. What our kids are going through is they're bear my kids are burying their friends. This is, it just, I, you know, again, this is like, you know, um, elements of the Holocaust. And that's what our kids are going through also seeing their friends die, seeing their friends' siblings, seeing children their age taken hostage. It's But they're great kids. I got to say the contrast between the American, best. yeah, right? Yeah, the best kids. Listen, you know, I tell people in America all the time, not, not many people realize that to graduate high school in this country, you need to do 250 hours of voluntary service. Mm -hmm. This is even before they go to the army or Sharut Leoni. That's right, or I have or a 16 year old. Mm -hmm. We are... It's built in to give, is built into the system here. And that makes kids that are less obsessed with selfies and iPhones. Not that they're not on their iPhones. They are. <laughs> But they have meaning and they have purpose. And it's not all about them. And in that, we're completely unique yeah. in the world. And that's why we will win. That's why we will win because of our ch children who are our future And, um, yeah, and have wonderful, bold leaders like yourself. Thank you for representing Israel, for fighting the good fight. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. You know, it's, you know, I saw just now the one, one of the, she wasn't a first responder. I just want to look it up. So I have it here. The officer tasked with arranging constant IDF funerals. She almost died this week because she had, she literally went into cardiac arrest from, from heart. There's been a rise in heart conditions of women in this country since the war. You know what that means? We have, we are heartbroken. That's what it means. Heartbroken. But we're not broken. I'm Israel. So there you have it. Episode 162 of the Weekly Squeeze podcast. My birthday's tonight. You can leave me a speak pipe. There's a link in the show notes. Those are voice notes that I can listen to. Or just, you know, rate my show. Take a second. Google it. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, following on Spotify. And yeah, I will see you next week.